0: Welcome to The Legal Academy, a podcast about law professors. I'm your host, Oren Kerr, a law professor at the University of California at Berkeley. This is an interview-based show in which I'll interview leading law professors about the legal academy. We'll cover topics like legal scholarship, teaching law, university service, and everything else that law professors think about. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to The Legal Academy, episode 13. I'm your host, Oren Kerr. My guest this week is Kristen Henning, the Agnes N. Williams Research Professor and the Director of the Juvenile Justice Clinic at the Georgetown University Law Center. Uh, Professor Henning is the former Lead Attorney of the Juvenile Unit at the Public Defender Service in Washington, D.C., Uh, and she's published a number of law articles on questions of race and the juvenile justice system, and most importantly from my perspective, the Fourth Amendment. Um, uh, She's been a visiting professor at Yale, where she received her JD, and also at NYU, Uh, and uh, just really, uh, Kristen, you're just a leader in clinical education, and I'm so excited to have you on the show uh, to talk about the role of clinical education.
1: Yeah, happy to be here. I love what you're doing. I love these conversations, so I'm right. glad to participate.
0: Great, awesome. So so I wanted to just, just jump right in. So wh- what do you see as the role of law school clinics uh, in, in legal education? And, and the reason I, I, one debate that I often hear framed around the role of law school clinics is that are law school clinics about training law students? Are they about the causes that the clinics are Endorsing is it sort of like an, a, a thinking of the approach of legal education of let's you know identify important causes and pursue them. Is it all of the above kind of give us sort of your picture of what what you see as the, the ultimate goals of law school clinical education.
1: Absolutely. So I, I'm going to answer you with a both and um, that it is absolutely the social justice mission and it is, the, is what we offer students by way of um, our pedagogical mission. Um, but I'm going to choose. I'm a bit biased. So I'm going to start with the social justice side. Um, but I think I, I am right about that. If we look at the history of clinical legal education, it really has its roots in the really pivotal questions of our country: the civil rights movement, the um, feminist movement, um, and so clinical education started before the '60s, but it really got its foothold um, from the 60s to the 90s and many of the critical questions that that law students came together with their uh, professors was around the social justice mission so i think um, you know again my bias is it's very much a social justice mission um, and we we think about like you know uh, gideon's um, you know the, the, I call it gideon 's promise, you know so the promise of Gideon versus Rain, uh, Wainwright and having lawyers for indigent uh, defendants, and the law schools really helped move that forward by providing free legal um, assistance um, to folks in the in the criminal justice system so it 's really I think um, uh, fitting. I also think understanding sort of the the, the social justice um, framework for clinical ed- ed- education is is critical today, um, given um, you know, the protests uh, after the killing of George Floyd. we are uniquely positioned in clinical programs across the country um, to, to take a stand um, and to engage students meaningfully um, in concrete ways in bringing about reform, so policy clinics. Um, you know, all of the criminal legal and juvenile legal clinics, all of the civil rights clinics across the country, all of the appellate clinics across the country, um, and so many more are well poised to address this um, this, this moment right now. Um, hashtag Me Too, all of the domestic violence clinics across the country, um, uniquely poised to, to address these, these questions. Um, uh, Trump's ban on uh, on uh, you know immigration from you know Muslim countries are you know asylum clinics uh, are uniquely poised to address some of these issues. So, I, I think social justice for me is the prevailing question um, or pre- prevailing goal. Did you wanna?
0: Jump yeah. I, well, there's there's a really interesting part of that too, which is uh, law schools trying to figure out which clinics to add. Yeah. Um, have have I I just from the outside, I've, I've seen these debates over whether to add certain clinics. And then there's a question of, you know, to what extent is the cause one that the school wants to endorse? To what extent is it? Obviously, obviously the question of what's going to be a good experience for students is, yes. is critical. Um, yes. But there's also, um, there was a dispute, maybe it was last year, maybe two years ago at Harvard, I believe, where there were, you know, conservative students were saying, well, if the Goal is causes. Why aren't there any clinics about causes that, you know, I think, and I, I think I, I shouldn't do this from memory, but I think Harvard added a religious liberty clinic, mm-hmm, uh, which mm-hmm, I guess Stanford yeah. has one as well. And yeah. I gather that was sort of a, a response to that. It, and I, I, I guess the question is how, how should law schools choose what clinics to have in light yeah. of, you know, there's going to be disagreement about what causes a school might want and also just lots of choices right like there's so many important causes how how should law schools think about you know should we add a clinic along a certain line so
1: interestingly enough i just you know had to grapple or i'm often grappling with this question i just finished a three-year term as associate dean for clinical programs at georgetown and throughout the three years we are constantly revisiting that question do we have the right mix of clinics um, and do, you know, every time we make a hire, you know, what new clinics should we bring on board or should we ex- expand existing ones? And, and here are some things that we consider. You, I mean, absolutely the pedagogical value of the clinic is really important. So, you know, it ties back to your, your first question about is it social justice? Is it what we teach our students? And there is a piece of, of. Um, the the pedagogical value of skills development, of uh, conveying and teaching values to students. um, What I love about clinical legal education, it is an extraordinary mix um, or extraordinary opportunity to apply theory and law to practice but bringing in doctrine, bringing in ethics, bringing in skills. And so it's um, legal research and writing. It is um, uh, uh, oral advocacy. Um, It it is negotiation. It is all of that. I mean, so I think that's a really critical question. You have to decide in in figuring out which clinics. And and what I say um, most important is the mixed. So it is, as your clinical dean, what does my full package look like? Do I have an array for students to pick uh, and choose from? Because I will say this to you, I, um, we firmly believe and I I firmly believe that the skills, whatever subject matter um, uh, you enter in a clinic, the skills are transferable to almost any other category. So that even if you're not interested in in criminal justice as your passion, you can be in a criminal justice clinic and then later do immigration policy. Like the skills that we learn should be transferable. So I think that's really important. I think um, causes matter, but you know, here's what, what, what I think is to be quite frank. It is you choose the best faculty. Right. You get excellent talent. And where do their passions lie? Because if we believe that we can convey the same set of skills and the same, you know, values uh, um, and the, you know, the same application of law and practice, then it doesn't, the the subject matter matters a little bit less.
0: Yeah, so this is great. So this actually gets to what was going to be my next question is sort of the, the question of hiring clinical yeah. faculty members and and what to look for and I'll I'll, I'll say sort of as uh, you know I'm a quote-unquote podium professor non-clinical even though I practice a little bit on the side but not not in a, in a clinic um, I've always deferred to what the clinical professors on the faculty already think um, yeah. so you know, <laughs> and, and, and that's out of a view of like well you know I don't I'm not particularly well equipped to say who's gonna be a great clinical professor so so yeah what what sh- what should the podium professors be looking for? And maybe the answer is always deferred to the clinical
1: professor. No, right, you start there, start there. No, i just kidding. Um, no, no, I think as a community, right? That's, like, that's great, I love it, I love it. So here's the deal. I think as a community, uh, a, a podium and clinical faculty, we should all be on one accord on this issue um, and should have meaningful conversations about what it looks like. But here's what we've come to. And we literally at Georgetown, we refine it, we refine it, we refine it. And here's where we've landed like in my term as associate dean and even before me but but it's four things um, four broad strokes one is you're looking for legal expertise and notice where i put that okay legal expertise because you're running a clinic that we need you is steeped and and talented um, um, in your your area of law we also need though um management skills because when you're running which is really odd you never think about this and this is why we had to put it um as one of our four priorities because when you think about hiring someone as a law professor you don't really look for management skills but if you're running a clinic you've got to be able to right it's an out it's a um front facing and 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 interior facing student facing I should say and and community facing function and a management function and it really requires a set of skills that everybody doesn't come into the legal academy with the third thing is is wonderful teaching skills and these aren't necessarily in order we actually consider them equal but scholarship We, and so, and I know we'll probably come back and talk about this more, like the role of clinicians in scholarship, but we firmly believe in scholarship, so a robust, you know, curricula of scholarship and we can talk about whether there are um, any variations. And then teaching, right? Um, is critically important. You know, the clinical pedagogical method is so important because it's important anyway in the legal academy, but you really spend so much time with your students. And, And our goal is if we are teaching students to apply the law and apply theory to real people and to real communities, then that pedagogical method becomes all the more important, right? We're not giving answers, right? We're helping students arrive at answers so that when they're out in the field and working with in a community meeting or working with an individual client that they have the skills to think on their own and and to navigate and to handle the questions that they are they are presented with Um, so it's really these broad strokes and I think they're equal Um, then they have to be equal for a clinician but you have to think long and hard about what is that what does that portfolio look like for a clinical professor
0: yeah uh, that's totally that's really really interesting and then um you mentioned a little bit ago that you're constantly rethinking what clinics are offered. And then have you had success sort of sort of, swi- keeping the personnel and then sw- switching topics, being like, well, we, wow. we did this kind of case for 10 years. I can imagine there are some situations that are sort of contingent on the political world or what's going yes. on in the news where like, you know post 9-11 you might have a set of issues that you focus on and then 10 years later okay that issue is more or less settled and then you move on to another issue have have you had success sort of move switching to new topics within the same the same personnel so
1: so yes and so I should say Georgetown is interesting because we have really one of the largest clinical programs in the country and because of that and so this I I share that to say um, that other schools may have to do this piece differently so we hire into subject matter areas and so we 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 have the luxury of saying well this year we really believe we have a um I'm just making this up though um we have a shortcoming let's just say in juvenile justice um and And so we can hire someone with that level of expertise. Many many law schools across the country will say, we need a robust clinical program. We need a robust set of offerings. And they'll post for clinical education. And then they'll have people bring their passion to the table and make their pitch for why. I think either of those are appropriate. Your question about can we switch once we're within. And so we hire into subject matter um and the expectation is look i'm an expert in juvenile justice so i will probably stay in that but within that there's so much i can do so here's a perfect example my clinic very much started as it's been around for 40 years we have been very much yes a bread and butter juvenile defense or criminal defense clinic representing clients on the front line over time however um we realized that we cannot continue to do just this work without doing systemic reform and so we launched so i'm actually now we're, we're the juvenile justice clinic and initiative because we have added a policy piece um and so we do a much more robust um uh, uh a clinical uh program now we um, have active you know policy cases we have uh, uh we do, um, you know, trainings across the country. So those kinds of things. I think, it,
0: yeah. Oh, sorry. Our policy cases. Does that mean like proposing or advocating for legislation? Sort of what And what is what is the student role in that tend to so be? So this
1: is interesting. So we have. So I should even not even talk about mine because I feel like policies are is our secondary. So we have whole policy clinics. And so the so the student's role is um, so a part of the social justice mission is serving clients and serving communities. And lawyering is about uh, letting your clients and your communities lead, right? So they're the voice. So a good policy clinic has clients, right? And so let's say, um, I don't know, you know, the Sierra Club, you know, has a policy agenda that they want to push forward. And so our students may team up in in a policy clinic and advocate um, at the, you know, for the, the stated interest in the stated goals of that client, right? So a very client driven. Um, and that's, I mean, every, you know, clinic, you could have your own policy agenda that you set um, with house and that you push out, but a lot of the policy clinics have clients. And then they help the clinic shape their agenda and strategize about what makes sense, things of that nature.
0: Okay. Interesting. What, one, um, the, your description of, of 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 this is which is in, incredibly interesting and so helpful is um, it, it's also resource intensive. Yes. Um, and and Georgetown is a university, you know, one of the biggest, if not the biggest. I think it may be the biggest law school, and obviously it's a you know top elite prestigious law school, which which is a well funded school. Um, how does it vary at other institutions? So um, one one really interesting aspect of the episodes we've done so far is we're talking about. And a lot of the podium professors and scholarship. And it's most law schools are offering basically the same law school curriculum, right? There are variations in the upper level electives, but at least for the podium classes, like everyone's taking contracts, everyone's taking torts, everyone, you know, so there's a lot of commonality. Um, yeah. And and is it my, my impression is that there's a lot more variation when it comes to clinical offerings, with some schools having a lot of clinical offerings and some schools having a lot fewer. And, and I was hoping you could explain first, is that impression right? And then, if it is right, kind of, what are the causes of that? Is it just money? Is it culture? Is it kind of what 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 might explain those? Areas?
1: That's a great question. I think it's both. You know, it's again another both and. I think it's money. I think it's culture. Um, I you know, I think you know, some of it is, it, it, you know, it's vision. So let me talk about each of the pieces, you know, if I can. I, I, I will say this for folks listening, is it's an investment well worth making. You're absolutely right. It's a, it, it is, you know, a costly endeavor, but it really is an investment worth worth making. And I'll make that pitch, you know, as to say, um, when the, the thinking about what is it, you know, who do we want to, you um, uh, what kind of lawyers do we want to produce for the world? Um, and lawyers who have had clinical legal education are just so well poised um, to make the world a better place, to be quite frank. And whatever, however you define that. Um, I, we often have judges, you know, at every, you know, uh, stage from, you know, the Supreme Court to to the federal circuits to state courts telling us that students who come out of clinical programs are just so much um, better equipped or just really well equipped uh, to come into a clerkship for example same thing in you know in in law firms they're looking for that 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 bodes well so producing um, the the, the lawyers that we want it is getting jobs for our students in in the ways that our students care about Um, it is teaching people to be better Better, you know be better analyst or you know legal analyst um, I think is, is all um, very important um, and so then so so is it a cost it, it's a cost it's cost worth making and how do schools decide I do think I, I think um, uh, culture School Georgetown has a really strong social justice mission. We're a Jesuit tradition. We are not going to have a law school that doesn't have a robust clinical program. We're just not. And so there's that. And so I think schools should ask that question. Like, um, and particularly in a moment like this, Orin, like I think it's really a, a question. What do? What kind of law school do I want to be? And. Um, I, if you want to be a school committed to social justice and and making a difference i think in your local community in your state and then nationally you got to have a strong clinical program um so that's a cultural question and then i you know i think in terms of resources it's it's, it's also about um i am a proponent of what we call hard funding so it's you know right it's it's raising the dollars to have the the law the clinical programs exist in-house but i have to say there is soft funding. Soft funding comes at moments like this, when foundations want to make a difference, and they want to make a difference in racial justice, or you know, in the wake of hashtag me too, or you know, in the wake of you know, conservative politics, and people want to make a difference, there's money to be had. Um, and so that I would encourage law schools um, to either do that fundraising specific for clinical programs themselves, Um, to partner with uh, local organizations that will will, will provide that funding or to hire faculty who can bring funding with them at a moment like this, I think is really critical.
0: Interesting. I I remember uh, a few years ago, there was a discussion at the ABA level about mandating some sort of experiential education. Mm -hmm. um, And that could be clinics, it could be externships, it could Mm -hmm. be lots of different Mm -hmm. things. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you have a feeling or or, or, a, a, a sense of sort of schools thinking through how to how to provide some sort of an experiential yes. part, part how they should think about that and, and I should say like when I was in law school I did an, an externship in the US attorney's yes. office which was just absolutely invaluable to me yes. I mean I learned so much just yes. being in an office surrounded by yeah. lawyers talking about lawyerly things and talking about the world I was like oh like here's how it all fits together um yeah. and it was just incredibly uh, valuable for me that was an externship kind of experience although they yes. called it a, a clinic mm-hmm. uh, um and and there are all these different ways are, are there do you kind of see them as similar in at least the student experience or should schools think about you know basically maybe is it like you know no no you want to do a clinic you don't want to do externship programs or any of these are fine like h- how should schools think through think kind of making that. sure students have these experiences.
1: Yeah, so you're, I mean, the, your timing is, is just right to ask that question. So just last year. So as I said, I just ended a three year term as associate dean. And in my third year, I think I'm right about that. Or is it my last two years, two of the three years. Um, yes, two of the three years, we made a decision at Georgetown to combine um, our um, the, the clinical dean portfolio is actually the Associate Dean for Clinics and Experiential Learning. Okay. And so we brought under one umbrella clinics, externships and practica. So those are your three categories that, that, you're, that you're really talking about. Um, and they're all a little bit different. Um, we uh, have a strong uh, uh, preference. Well, we have all three and we have all three robustly. But we have a strong preference for being able to give students a clinical education opportunity if we can. And we say that because it it really, we are, um, as faculty, we have full-time tenured faculty in the classroom for the seminar component. We have full-time, you know, uh, tenured faculty going out into the field um, um, advocating with our students. Um, in ways that you can't, you know, do in an externship. So it's really, it's almost like, for lack of better words, it's a capstone, right, on externships and practica. So we will allow our students to do an externship, a practicum, and then a clinic, right? Um, So I recognize those students, uh, many law schools don't have all of those. So I would say, like, as you're thinking about what your mix looks like, um, having as many, uh, clinical programs or clinical offerings as your your budget will allow would be my recommendation, but that absolutely, just as you just said, externships are exceedingly valuable. Creating a robust externship program, and here's the key for a robust externship program. It has got, there's a wonderful, Community of externship professors, Um, and and the uh, and the key is having a a, a strong externship mentoring program within the law school, uh, a strong externship seminar component. It's usually like a one credit, you know, component that goes with that. Um, And I think when the externship movement started, we just sort of sent people out you know and maybe they would right? you know and then maybe they would have you know somebody they would check in with at the, the law school but for really quality externship programs we you you got to have someone at the law school who is you know who's doing oversight of the students and who of the employers and then the third category is this practicum um these practica right which are courses somewhere between an externship and a um uh uh and a a clinic and we really bring in usually um uh, uh an adjunct professor somebody who's practicing that's the idea just as you said you want that connection with somebody who's working out in the field and what's great about dc but it's true all over the country is we've got all these federal entities right all these federal agencies and somebody can come to the law school and teach a wonderful phenomenal class um and create and and um and as a part of that practica um, or that practicum, they can have work projects, right? So they would have, let's say, a fact-finding uh, mission or a white paper or a briefing paper or some legislative advocacy, whatever their projects are within the clinic or within, excuse me, within the practica.
0: Interesting. Yeah, it's su- super interesting. So I wanted to turn to a different topic, which is um, the role of... Clinical faculty on a faculty, so there are yeah. obviously the different episodes I've had so far have been the, the podium faculty, um, and then um, add in you know cl- clinical professors and podium faculty, and I've there are, I've seen on past faculties I should say, not my yeah. current faculty, there can be some tensions there about directions, and there are, there are a lot of different issues. And, and one of them that I wanted to start with is the question of sort of rights and privileges of faculty members, salary of faculty yeah, members, yeah, yeah. where um, you know you, you used to have a world where it was all the podium, tenured professors teaching their contracts and towards classes. And then as you said, sort of in 1970-ish around the, you start getting clinics, and then there's this question of oh, what, how do clinic, clinical faculty members, how do they fit? And I've, I've been on past faculties where there were votes, you know, to whether to tenure clinical faculty members, and what are the standards for promotion, and what are the standards for, and, and just sort of h- how you have those two you know, somewhat distinct worlds, and maybe even increasingly distinct worlds, how do you have them coexist and everybody get along? And, and, and,
1: and the like. So, so let me start actually, so it's interesting. Um, I would say we are having um, increasingly less distinct worlds. Um, okay. And 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 the way I know that it's not just Georgetown, um, and it hasn't been just Georgetown for a while, but the way we know it's not um, uh, is the way the the market is going. Um, Meaning the 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 double A L S market is very much. It doesn't look it might not look integrated on its face because you'll see a clinical posting, but that the the, when I mentor. I don't care who you're calling me from where you're, you know, what school you're applying from I invariably get the question, you know, do I Do I need to have scholarship or what does my portfolio need to look like Um, and it looks increasingly across the country, just like, you know, podium faculty. So I think, you know, I I would be doing a disservice to people that I mentor if I don't push people to get as close to that podium model as possible. Now, I will say at Georgetown, I'm, I'm, you know, a bit biased because we have a, we have an integrated track um it is it is truly the same um it's the same hiring committee we might have a subcommittee to look at a specific area um, but it's the same committee it's the same standard it's the same tenure requirements it's all of that and so i come from that tradition um and i i think it's exceedingly valuable um as as a as a model so you say rights and privileges um uh, salaries, all of that. Um, also, I should say it writes privileges and responsibilities. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry,
0: you're stuck on that committee too. <laughs> it's yes, I'm
1: definitely on that committee. I'm on those five committees, in fact, <laughs> and you know, and I'm chairing one and being on another one. So Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Um, and so, so that was going to be, I actually made a note to say this, cause I always like to say this, um, because that's my bent is the integrated model. Um, and, and so what it means, rights and responsibilities, means that you, you, you definitely have all the responsibility, you're chairing, you're, you're doing all of that, but the concern is, and so I'll say this for clinicians, you know, out there, um, you know, our caseloads are heavy. Right. And our client responsibilities are heavy and our community engagement is wide and broad and it makes it hard to do it all. So you're telling me you want me to write scholarship and you want me to like chair a committee and you want me to, you know, teach my class and, and, and all of this. And so um, you have to decide. Um, whether that's what you want to go into, I do think the clinical world is moving there. I, I just, I, the people that I mentor, the people who come and seek advice, that's what they're applying to across the country. They're applying to these integrated models, it's, and the it's expectations totally are high. Yeah, <laughs> and
0: um, and I, you're you, now now that you say that, I'm thinking like, oh yeah, like I do, I can think of definite examples of of, of that of that sort of integration happening. What wh- why do you think that trend is happening? What are the pressures that are Oh, that's
1: a wonderful question um I would say my mentors I, I, I would say my mentors would say um, that it is it has evolved naturally um, for so many reasons I think as as clinicians you know began to write you know so let's say the clinical movement started as a social justice movement but that the people who are naturally drawn into the academy have the passion for scholarship that that um that podium faculty do and it became you know a standard bearer I also think to be honest with you questions of equity um in the law school i mean we're a lot you know we're we're people who care you know lawyers care about equity and law professors care a lot about equity and so to be in a community where you have second class citizens and where you have tears wasn't going to last very long anyway Um, and so i know that was a part of the push um from you know the generation you know above you know above me so you asked about questions like you know salary and parity and voting rights and there were law schools across the country that were voting on which faculty members to hire for the clinics and the voting and the clinical faculty didn't have a vote that's a problem you know so i think um i I think all of those reasons um you know come into play and i think honestly some of it is the uh social justice attracts often you know people of color and and women around some issues and uh you've got to be careful about having an academy that has a a tier system where you have you know a higher percentage of people of color and women maybe on in the clinical programs and so i think that has been a part of the the push to shift us in a different direction as well
0: yeah that's interesting it make it makes sense and and i I also wonder if it's and this is just a, a question is it also um it's such a competitive mm-hmm. position Yes. And, and and so we've seen all, all across the board right every, every position in the legal academy yes. has gotten more competitive and you often hear from senior professors i would have never gotten this job um if it had been me and a lot of times well it's just a different world where you would go to get it so you would have done more to try to get it but um but in a world where it's that much more competitive is is just like those that have checked the boxes and succeeded in the Podium world can then sort of, you know, where you've got most of the votes on a faculty of who to hire Absolutely. coming for Podium, they'll be like, oh, I see like these the good law review articles. I'm ha- happy. Or like, Is it just sort of that market pressure maybe that's
1: even- Absolutely. And I actually thought about that a couple of times during our conversation that it sort of popped in my head that honestly, absolutely, the competition, the market. And so when I talk about mentoring young uh, scholars who are coming or young clinicians who want to enter the academy, I say to them, if you want to be competitive, you need to do these four things. Even if your law school doesn't currently think or the, the schools that you're interested in don't currently think that this is what you need, I guarantee you once they start looking at applications, they're going to see that they can have that. Um, and exactly what you said, to the extent that you've got podium faculty voting on the hiring, they're going to be gravitating to those folks who look most like them on paper. Right. right. You're absolutely right about that.
0: Yeah, no, that that I've definitely, it, it, it goes back to, you know, that I was saying before, I, I just de- defer to the clinical faculty members. And then it's like, to the extent a resume looks like, oh yeah, this is, you know, oh, then then, then that's easy, right? right? Like, right oh this you know, clicks all the boxes and you don't have, you don't have to think about it from the standpoint of somebody who's like may consider themselves an outsider to that to that choice so that that right. that makes a lot of sense and then um from the standpoint of a person who wants to become a clinical professor yeah. what do they do um, what, mm-hmm. what is the what is the path and, and you, you just talked about ex- experience as a top yeah. advocate for example so maybe it's just you, you get that experience but I'm interested in those that are interested in becoming clinical professors what's the Either path or most common yeah.
1: paths. So I gotta, you know, look, I think, um, again, this is gonna be some of my bias, but it, it certainly played out in my career path. You gotta work. <laughs> you gotta work first. Um, and so, you know, uh, I think, to be quite frank, uh, all law professors should work first. <laughs> I call it work first. Uh, <laughs> as if we're not working but um but right like I think you got to be out in the street you got to be with the people you gotta like be a lawyer and know what it means to be a lawyer right we're better professors when a student comes up to us on break and you know and ask a question and we're able to understand how it really just what you said you know you're saying in your externship oh this is how this works right like we need to be able to actually answer that <laughs> um and not just theorize about it um but even more so in the clinic you gotta work and so so I was um, so there's a couple of paths that, that I uh, that just popped in my head. Um, one is there are a number of clinical fellowship opportunities so you graduate from law school and then there are some schools like georgetown you know we have um, a really robust clinical fellowship program for people who have graduated from law school i um, some of whom have even worked for several years and then apply to be one of our fellows and learn the pedagogical method and learn and get experience as a good teacher uh, coming onto the market um, but we're looking for people who have been out uh, in, in the field so I think that that's that's one thing we're also you know looking for people who are intellectually curious right um, and intellectually engaged not just for scholarship for scholar not just scholarship for scholarship's sake but scholarship that um, demonstrates that you're thinking transformatively, about the law right so even in my like my clinic my own individual juvenile justice clinic our clinic materials for students who are interested in applying you know have a phrase is we're looking for students who are interested in um assessing the laws and take and changing them um, or are talking about how we might change them when they're no longer useful or when they become harmful um, to folks and so i I share that to say that that's what we're looking for in a really good professor that scholarship Um, shows that you're thinking rigorously about the state of the law, right, or the state of policy and how you might move that forward or change that um, or or endorse that if, if that's appropriate. And so I think that's what we're looking for as well.
0: And, and then are the fellowships uh, environments where the scholarship happens? Because I imagine, let, let's say you want to be a clinical professor, you go, you become a practicing lawyer. You know, a PDS, for example, which has generated yeah, yes. a very large number of law professors, Absolutely. clinical, non-clinical, um, <laughs> across the board. Um, and then you're obviously very difficult to write law review articles while you yes. are a public defender. Uh, yes, uh, yes. In the seven minutes you have free of your exactly.
1: day. Exactly.
0: Um, and so. Uh, is the idea that you practice for a few years and then take the fellowship. During the fellowship, you write the scholarship to impress the podium faculty and then go on the market? Is that kind of like a- Well
1: oh, that's a really good question. I wish it were that smooth. So the answer is for those who are lucky enough to get those fellowships, yes. Um, I don't even want to say lucky enough. There, there, there are a number of fellowships out there, but everybody who's going on the clinical market, there just isn't enough fellowship. There aren't enough fellowships. So everybody's not going to have that track. So the answer is that is awesome. If you can do it, do a fellowship because yes, it should give you some of that opportunity. But I got to say, even some of the clinical fellowships, like, you know, uh um, are pretty, you know, intensive. And so it's hard even to find writing. But yes, absolutely. So for example, the Georgetown Clinical Program, Fellowship Program, um, has mentoring. We have wonderful um, faculty mentors around scholarship and we do job talks with our, our, our faculty. Um, uh excuse me our fellows who are going on the market so yes ideally that's the path so the challenge is and this is why i say i I, I think you know clinical faculty are some of the you know most extraordinary human beings because they've got to figure out how do i write while i'm still practicing or how do i demonstrate my you know intellectual curiosity um and and the like and so All, all you have
0: to do is do everything (laughs)
1: <laughs> See, that's all you have to do. That's all, I don't know what I don't know what the problem is, uh, So that's exactly right. So sometimes um, this is another thing to point out to folks is that when you enter, you're in the entering market of the of of um, the entering market for clinical positions. Some of the schools will give some leeway. So they might take a shorter paper, right, instead of a traditional law review. Like if you've got some, you know, two or three pieces that are placed in like some, you know, a a legal journal that's not a traditional law review, that might be considered. We might also look at some briefs that you have written that are really, really, really robust. Um, In addition to at least one work in progress that's more of a traditional law review. So in other words, and I do encourage law schools to do this, is to be a bit more expansive at the outset for a completely brand new entering professor who has come from a job where they have no opportunity to write, that we will look more broadly at those other pieces, but expect that you will um, produce a job talk that's traditional. Does that make sense?
0: That makes a lot of sense. And and I think I think um, the the framework of thinking about the entry level hiring makes a yeah. lot of sense in terms of satisfying the practice requirement, having some sort of scholarship to kind of be able to you know please the different audiences that, right. that 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 makes a lot of sense and and then there's the question though of tenure and promotion yeah. throughout a career yeah. um and and it actually a a question i should know the answer to but i don't is there a what's the proportion of clinical professorship positions that are tenure track oh wow tenure, do you know i really Ball wish Park. i knew
1: the answer to that um there there is um for folks who are interested there is a uh, I believe on the AAALS website, there, there's, um, it's called the C, uh, I wish I knew what it stood for, um, C-S-A-L-E, uh, I feel terrible for everybody. Uh, but you can find this data, like this is the kind of data you can find, like what percentages are. Um, but what you can do, more importantly, honestly, is, is you wanna figure out like school by school by school, what their, what their approach is. So at Georgetown, we're, we are, I would say what, 90% tenure track? Um, we have professors from practice, and we have um, some uh, um, some uh, a couple of contract um, pro- uh, professors for any variety of reasons. Um, and they serve different needs, you know for our community, right? Um, and so uh, it's a culture. It's a real culture question. And, um, yeah,
0: and, and then I guess what i'm I'm thinking, let's assume a school where there is a it's a tenure track slash tenured line that the mm-hmm. clinical faculty member is is in, yes. um, what what should the standard for tenure be? What should the standard for promotion be?
1: Oh, that's a be? really good question. And, so, yeah.
0: Because so it's, it's a weird, it's
1: like you know there
0: are debates of this obviously in the podium context, yeah. but it's usually about like how many law review articles should the right, person write? And right. it's assumed that the person is teaching their classes, but spending a tremendous amount of their time writing and then you have a job where it's like okay you wrote scholarship in order to get the position but you're you're a lawyer and you're teaching students and that's that's a totally different world what how, how do you how should we think about what the standard ideal tenure standard should yeah
1: be? did i say clinicians were superstars did i mention that no. <laughs>
0: No, agreed I mean, upon and implicit yeah,
1: right so in all seriousness though like it depends on the school at georgetown we do everything they do plus what we do and so our tenure standard is the same there's no separate written standard for clinical and non-clinical and we don't we don't deviate from that. So that's a choice that we made as a community. Someone, a clinician who is not interested in that approach should not apply for Georgetown, right? Should not try to enter. There are schools who take a different view on that, um, that you, know, you write to get in as entry level, um, and, and and again, that they will continue as they decide whether you're tenured or not, they will um, look more broadly at briefs or all the other work that you're doing. It really varies widely from school to school to school. There are um, a number of schools that have long-term contracts, which is, so I, I should, you know, just the politics of it all. So there's tenure track, um, which gives you longevity. Um, uh, it gives you protection. Um, and it gives you status. But people, uh, uh, young uh, clinicians who are most concerned about status, in other words, nobody wants to go to a law school and be on a year-to-year contract, right? That's not, you know, so that's separate than really the status question, right? Um, And that's different than the equity question. Um, But they just wanna make sure I don't get fired tomorrow. (laughs) And so that's what, so the the equivalent is the long-term contract a route. And so you'll see that. And that's sometimes um, in some of the elite schools as well, that they're they're saying, hey, we respect you. We're not going to let you go. But, you know, we set up different standards when we created our program, but here's your long-term contract. You know, the tenure model does all of that. It gives you parity on pay. It gives you parity on responsibility. It gives you parity on rights. It gives you, but it also means you got to, you know, do your scholarship exactly as the podium faculty. And
0: is there a, general rule for what kind of law schools are going to have different models? Is it... No, um...
1: that's a really good question too. Um, I, I, I wish I knew the answer to that. I think it was a question you asked earlier. What is it about? And I think it's about money. I think it's about culture. Um, I think those are the two drivers um, uh, for that. Um, Honestly, and I think probably three is leadership, right? And when I say leadership is not, is, is, is finding, it's having um, someone, so even if the culture isn't there, right? And maybe the money isn't there. If you have somebody really strong, either on your faculty or in close relationship as an alum to the school, they can really push um, the development of a strong clinical program. We, we've seen that um, happen uh, as well. So, yeah, I really think it's it's really about, there's no, so the schools differ. So you see um, uh, state schools, you know, with lower funding have really, really strong commitments to social justice. And then you have private Ivy Leagues that say, okay, we value it, but we're not doing it. You know what I mean? So I think it's, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, it makes sense that it's a cultural questions you know in 1935 <laughs> dean so-and-so said this is what our school is about right. and then you know right. 80 years later that's what we're doing um, yeah. so I, I can i can totally uh, imagine that and it, i i wanted to um return to the, the the culture not really a culture question but um the sort of not gap but potential differences between the clinical faculty member and the podium faculty member and as you you were exactly you made a ton of sense in saying that you know these days especially the junior clinical hires are people who could be competitive in the non-clinical like the people are so good and they're so credentialed yeah. and they've got their larvae articles and and they're really strong and um, and at the same time as you have clinical faculty members maybe moving towards the podium model you have the podium model moving towards the Ph.D. model.
1: Yes, um, right. And,
0: and so maybe they're. You know the one's moving towards the other but the other is sort of chasing away as well i wonder kind of how this plays out in 10 or 20 years where are we going to be in a world where the this this, i'll put the extreme version the only people who have any idea what lawyering is are the clinical (laughs) faculty members right The, the podium faculty member are phds in their doc in their areas and then you run into sort of um you know clinicians clinical faculty members are going to be needing to play an important you know an even broader role on a faculty in sort of rooting it in the law yeah. or is that i mean so I- I-
1: for a different perspective that story, I yeah. see. And, and maybe we're just seeing different things. You're, you know, you're east, west coast, I'm east coast. So here's what I'm seeing though. Um, I am and in particular in a moment like this in our country, I am so absolutely. So I shouldn't have said I should see what you I see what you're saying. Also, yes, historians, PhDs, all of that are also um joining the, the legal academy. However, at the same time, I am seeing more podium faculty interested in partnering with clinicians around issues that they care about right and so i think they feel the same thing that we feel you can do the theory you can do the um the writing um you can do the theory you can do the scholarship but there's a point at which i really want to make a difference and then how do i actualize that so we i see that a lot at you know george it's not even just at, at you know um really, at other schools where people will say, I'd really, I've been writing this uh, article, I've been thinking about family law in this way, as a matter of theory, and I'd really like to put some piece of that in practice, or I'd really like to see some policy advanced around that, right? And and so there's a marriage of the clinicians with the podium, and I think that's very active and very alive, and I'm finding it even more now.
0: Yeah, and it, it, it's super interesting, and it, it raises a question actually that I could take advantage of your recent dean expertise is just the nuts and bolts of how how schools blend roles in a way. Like, do you have a? Let's say you've got a clinical professor who wants to teach one L criminal law, which yeah, man, exactly. many do, or you know, is it like okay, you're not on the clinic one semester, or is it the expectation of you stay, you do everything, and in addition, teach a one L class? Yeah,
1: how, right. How, how do you?
0: how practically do associate deans tend to um, figure that
1: out blend,
0: blend those roles and allow people yeah. to Yeah.
1: So that's a that's also a really really wonderful question and I think you see a number of different models and, and our, our our perspective is this because they're tenure track at Georgetown I'll give you some other examples other places but because they're tenure track um, I mean and tenured I'm mean, even you know most of our uh, clinicians are now tenured so once they're tenured you get to do what you know you, you have that freedom so we do we have um, Clinics, who we have uh, uh, faculty members who teach one semester in the clinic, one semester CIF Pro. One semester in the clinic, one com- semester CIF Pro. Um, the way they do that, though, because we have such a robust clinical program, we have the clinical offerings all year long. So they have a co-teacher, a partner, and so they just alternate, alternate, alternate. So that's one thing is having, um, having teams. Team teachers, so that faculty have the freedom to do some of so, something uh, like that. Um, there are indeed faculty members who are in our clinics who teach seminars um, in addition to their clinic. They're glutton for punishment. I fought <laughs> a practicum once. I don't know what I was thinking. I had my whole clinic and a practicum. But people teach ethics. Our clinicians teach e- ethics courses, CIP Pro, Krim um, Pro. Um, so you see a little bit of everything. I will say this, and this is again, this is gonna be my bias. I've seen so at Georgetown, we never force anyone to do that. I would never say to a clinician, I I you have to, by mandate, teach blah. Um, there are schools that do that. And I, I just say to the administrators who are listening to me, that's hard, right? Like making your clinician run a clinic and teach a, a, a first year CREM law, you know, you know, criminal justice class is hard thing to do, particularly for one else and there are large classes. So I'm not a fan of that model. Uh, It works for other people and they're happy with it. I think, you know, faculty should get to decide um, in some ways. Um, And then the last thing I'll say about that is when we need pitch hit um, somebody to pitch hit, right? Like, so uh, uh, let's say you're one of your four criminal justice faculty has to be out on an emergency. You know, we've got clinical folks who could, you know, who are really esteemed and could take that class on. And so it's a real team environment so somebody might step up and 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 and, you know pitch in
0: yeah i can imagine this is a situation where size is a is a real benefit to having you know if you've got so many faculty members and so just you you can you can rearrange things i imagine more readily than if it's a smaller kind of school but right um, yeah interesting this is this has been an incredibly interesting conversation i want to thank you um, uh, uh for having it. You've, you I mean, you've really um, added a piece of the puzzle to legal education which has been missing. We had we had Pam Carlin on the yeah, on the show earlier right. and she talked about her role in the clinical uh, uh, the Supreme Court clinic at, right. at law schools. but that was you know obviously one one angle of it and this is just a much broader perspective. so I want I want to thank you for coming on the show. It was, uh, yeah, it was incredibly interesting.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm glad I could join you. Great. All right, take care.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Legal Academy. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us at wherever you rate podcasts. If you'd like to watch a video version of this episode, you can find it on YouTube at channel The Legal Academy. Finally, you can also follow us on Twitter at The Legal Academy. Thank you.